This podcast is brought to you by Aetna. Learn how Aetna is working to build a healthier world by visiting aetnastory.com. Hi, it's Doro, and I'm so excited to announce that the Achieving Optimal Health Conference is just around the corner on October 26th at Georgetown University. For our Health Gig listeners, we have a special offer. If you sign up by September 20th, you'll get $50 off your ticket. Just go to AchievingOptimalHealthConference.com and use the code HEALTHGIG. Get ready to create a happier and healthier life story. People are yearning for information. Having the opportunity to encourage people and to educate people and inspire people. It's amazing to be able to say we'll carve out time to take care of ourselves. There's something for everyone. Welcome to the BBNR Wellness Podcast. I'm your host, Patricia Riley Cook. And I'm your host, Dora Bush Cook. Thank you for listening. We are so excited that we get to do this podcast and help people learn how to take better care of themselves by interviewing thought leaders and experts in health and wellness about their personal health journeys. So we're sitting here at David Rubenstein's office, and we're really excited about interviewing David today. He is an incredible human being, and we're excited to talk about all the things David Rubenstein. But today, we're not going to talk to him really about his businesses as much as we're going to talk to him about what his life is like. How does he achieve his own optimal health and what he does to stay healthy and strong and change the world in only the way someone like David Rubenstein can. We look forward to this discussion and we can't wait to circle back with you when we're done. We are so happy to be here with our longtime friend, David Rubenstein. And when we asked you to be on our um, podcast to talk about what makes you healthy and happy, you immediately said yes. But you also said this, so Trisha, please read what. I'm not a model for how to stay in good health. I assume I will be used as a contrast with the blonde haired, blue eyed, tall, slim, vitamin taking, (laughs) healthy and fit vegan who drinks only purified water from Antarctica and green drinks. Nobody's perfect. But you do have many qualities that have contributed to a life that's pretty fabulous. And that's what we want to talk about today. But before we do that, we you haven't even tried your green drink. Okay. So we want to know how you like your green drink. Do you drink green drinks? Uh, tell me what's in it. Okay. So it's kale and spinach and apple and lemon and ginger. Um, so do you ever drink green drinks? Uh, it sounds awfully healthy, but I'll try it. <laughs> we want to know what you think. Mm-hmm. That seems okay. Okay, yeah. good. It's just a lot of energy. Is this going to make me healthy and all of yeah. a sudden I'm going to sprout <laughs> well, it's gonna, muscles, I'm going to live longer? It's going to augment your life. You're healthy in certain areas and maybe you could incorporate this as well. But And it's easy to drink every morning, right? Yeah. Okay, I got mm-hmm. it. Good. Mm-hmm. But we wanted to start um, by asking you about your daily routine. What is your daily routine like? I would say it's not as exciting as people might think. <laughs> So I typically get up at about uh, 5.30, and um, I think for about two minutes about whether I should go downstairs and exercise, and I quickly let that thought go past me. Mm -hmm. And then I start watching the morning news and get ready to go to work, and then I try to get into the office by about 7 if I can, and when I'm in in Washington, D.C., and then I try to read the papers and catch up on the news and emails for about an hour and then start meetings from 8 until maybe lunch. And I typically have a luncheon speech or an interview or something like that, and then go in the afternoon. 
and then I typically have a dinner at night or an interview or a presentation. And I do this a bit when I, but I do travel a lot. And so when I'm doing things on the road, I'm basically doing the same thing on the road. So it might sound exciting, but it's not all that exciting. How's your sleep? Um, sleep is a complicated subject. Um, I just got a book from um, Ariana Huffington telling me I need to read uh, sleep more, which I think is probably a good idea. Um, I now get by on roughly five hours a night of sleep on the weekdays, and that's probably not enough, I guess you would all say. I think on the weekends, I try to get maybe six or seven hours if I can, uh, but I am a little sleep deprived because I am not good at saying no. I didn't say no to this podcast, right? <laughs> We're very grateful. Yes, so I, I'm not good at saying no. And the result is that I um, I make a lot of speeches, probably 250 to 300 a year. I do maybe 100 interviews a year. And then I've got a private equity firm. And then I have a family office. And I've got a lot of nonprofit boards I'm chairing. So I, I have too many things compressed into the day. And I'm now uh, 68 years old, an age when, you know, many people say, why don't you retire? Uh, so I am trying to squeeze as much into the remaining years of my life as possible. So I actuarially, I probably should live to about 85 years old because my father made it to 85. My mother made it to 86. And since I'm not a paragon of fitness and wellness, it's likely that my genes will get me, get me to 85, or 86, not my exercise routine, which barely exists, or um, my healthy eating, which doesn't really exist either. So if I get it to 85 or 86, that means I've lived uh, most of my expected actuarial life, and I've got a very small window now, maybe 16, 17 years, to get everything done that I want to get done. So I'm racing to the finish line is what I'm calling myself. Right. I say I'm racing to the finish line to get everything done before the body gives away or the mind gives away. You never know which is going to give away first, assuming no accident or, or terrible catastrophic illness. Um, something's going to give out. And in my case, it could be both simultaneously. <laughs> but sometimes you don't know. Some of my friends, have, their bodies have given out. Some of my friends, their minds have given out. Right. And um, so far, I've been blessed with pretty good health. I've never been overnight in a hospital other than to be born. Um, so that's pretty good. That's pretty good. I. Um, so there must be other things in your life that yeah. contribute to your health and your happiness. It's and it's not just right. It's not just the food you eat and the right. exercise you do. Well, my exercise is what I call exercise by osmosis, which is I have a lot of gym equipment in my basement and I walk <laughs> past it every, you know, couple hours and hope that it will, you know. <laughs> The, the feeling will come but through. But also, you move around a lot, right? I mean, when I mean, you get up, you walk, you move around in between, you walk to your I offices. do, but to be serious, uh, nobody who has the kind of life that I have, which is mostly making speeches or being in meetings, is as active as somebody who doesn't have that kind of life. So when I do take some time off, and let's say I go to Florida, I will walk, you know, 10 or 15 miles a day. Uh, but that's rare. Mm -hmm. I find from my Apple iPhone mm -hmm. that I'm actually walking on average about one mile a day, one and a mm -hmm. half miles a day, just by the normal things I do. Mm -hmm. But when I'm on vacation or taking some time off, I might walk 10 or 15 miles a day, but it's hard to sustain that. So I've reached the age where I recognize I'm not an exercise person and I'm not likely to all of a sudden become one. I'm not as fit as I should be, uh, but I have concluded that because of genes and other I don't do dangerous things. I, I don't ever drink alcohol mm -hmm. and I've never tasted alcohol. No alcohol. Ever? 
No, never tasted it. Wow, not even in college. No, I, I, I was, uh, I was a nerd in college, and I was a study. So I didn't. I, I, no, no alcohol, no drugs, never taken drugs. Um, I don't take any medications. I generally probably because I wouldn't be able to remember to take them every day. So I, I take no medications, no, never taken drugs, no alcohol, never smoked. So because of those things, you could argue maybe I've added one or two or three years to my actuarial mm-hmm. life, but you never know. People, I there are some of my friends who have been rig, uh, rigorous and vigorous um, exercisers, an hour a day, like religion. Um, they eat vegan only. They um, never smoke, never drink. And then they come down with illnesses that you can't under- explain. Yeah. Other people seem to be smoking, they're drinking, and then they're you know, going about their life, they're 90 years old. Um, you know, you just can't figure it out. So there's no easy way to explain it. In my case, I... I think I probably have reasonably good genes, and therefore the things I'm doing are maybe not hurting me that much, or not helping me either. I wish I could exercise more. I wish I could, you know, eat healthier food. But when you're traveling a lot, it's hard to find healthy food. You know, mm-hmm. people, you know, serve you stuff, and if you're going to a lot of lunches, dinners, people, you can't say, well, you know, I'm a healthy eater, and your food isn't really good for me. Mm-hmm. So could you get something else? <laughs> and I also have noticed that, you know, uh, you know, when I used to fly commercial a lot. I would, my office would say, well, order a vegetarian move, uh, uh, meal for me. So I'm flying around. And then, you know, sometimes in the Middle East, uh, what they, they call vegetarian different thing. They would say kosher. So they're going down the aisle saying, who ordered the kosher food here? And I'm flying around Saudi Arabia or some other place. And they're saying, you know, who's the guy with the kosher food? Um, so, but I, I do try to eat carefully and I don't eat meat. I've never, I, 20 years or so, I haven't eaten meat. So I don't know whether these things will make me healthy or not. Yeah, well, it sounds like it. I think that you're doing really well. I mean, you look amazing. Well, well, you think I'm 68. Actually, I'm, you know, (laughs) I'm I'm, I'm 58. So I forget. No. Um, One of the things we talk a lot about is transformation. And we feel like you have made a transformation in your life. Um, you were a successful businessman, and then now you've decided to spend the rest of your life giving back right. and doing other things. And so, can you talk a little bit about yes. that? Um, I came from very modest circumstances. My father and mother did not complete high school. Uh, my father worked in the post office, never made more than seven or $8,000 a year. I was the only child. So, I, in hindsight, it was a great advantage because the greatest thing you can have in life is... Um, two parents that have unconditional love for you. My parents gave me that and they gave me a sense that I could achieve whatever I wanted. So I bought into the American dream, rightly or wrongly. And I didn't know that I, how disadvantaged I was in hindsight compared to other people, but I I always believed I could accomplish things by working hard. So I did. And I wasn't that great a lawyer. So I got out of that. I worked in the white house for president Carter. I got inflation to 19%. So I wasn't that good at that, (laughs) but, um, I eventually realized I wasn't that good at many things, but in, when at 37 years old, I read that an entrepreneur will start his or her first company between the age of 28 and 37. I, I said, I better do something. I'm 37. So I started Carlisle when I was 37, and we got very lucky. I had very good partners. It turned out to be one of the more successful private equity firms in the world. When I hit my age of 54, Forbes magazine wrote an article saying how much money I had made. So I realized that I had lived two-thirds of my expected actuarial life, and I really hadn't given away that much money and done that much uh, philanthropically, I'd really just built the business. So I decided to spend the remaining 
expected one-third of my actuarial life, giving away the money that I made. So I signed the giving pledge that Bill Gates, uh, Warren Buffett came up with. I was one of the first 40 people to do that. And I got deeply involved in a lot of philanthropic activities, uh, both giving away my money, my time, and my energy and ideas. And I reminded myself that philanthropy meant it's an ancient Greek word that means loving humanity. It doesn't mean just writing checks. So I didn't just want to give money. I wanted to do other things. Right. So I, I got deeply involved in um, paying back people who had been helpful to me or things that helpful to me. So I was inspired to go into public service by John Kennedy's inaugural address. So I got involved with the Kennedy Center. I'm now the chairman of the Kennedy Center. I thought the Smithsonian was a wonderful organization. My parents took me there as a young boy. It was for free. So I got involved in the Smithsonian. I'm now the chairman of that. I loved reading as a child. I couldn't afford to buy books. So I go to the library. My parents would take me to the library. And now I'm the chairman of the Madison Council, which is the library and con Congress's uh, uh, support vehicle. I um, went to Duke University on a scholarship. So I got involved there and I became the chairman of Duke University. I was very interested in, in, in foreign policy. So I got involved in the Council on Foreign Relations. I'm now the chairman of that. I was very involved in other public policy and I became the co-chairman of Brookings. And I uh, became the I, I, I liked Washington, D.C. because a city that I, I built my company in. So I became the president of the Economic Club of Washington. And I um, felt all these things were giving back. So I put a lot of money together in scholarships and other things for the universities that were helpful to me. The University of Chicago, for example, gave me a scholarship and I've, I've given them a fair amount of money as well. Mm -hmm. So I've given all these organizations uh, a fair amount of money in my time. And I, I feel good about it. I just wish I had more time and I'd started earlier. And I used the test um, uh, this way, I gave the commencement speech last year at Duke University. And at that time, um, I invited my mother. Uh, my father had already passed away. My mother was living alone in Florida. And my mother, when I was building Carla, never would say, well, David, you just took a company public. Congratulations. David, you just made a lot of money on this IPO. Um, she never did do that. But when I started giving away the money, she would say, David, I'm proud of what you're doing. And so I adopted what I call the mother metric. If your mother is proud of you, what more do you want in life? And the ultimate exactly. happiness in life is having your mother or your father, uh, particularly if they're Jewish, think that you've done something useful. So I was very happy when my mother was um, proud of what I had done. And I would send her articles that were written about me and she would read them. And then she would say, David, I read this article 10 times. And I said, well, it doesn't change. It's the same article. We read it 10 times or nine times, but she loved to do it because that's all she did. I was her only child. Um, I invited her to go to the commencement of Duke because I said, this is my last year as chairman of the board. I'd like you to come to my last year. And she said, okay, well, who's the commencement speaker? And I said, well, it's me. <laughs> and she said, oh, they couldn't get Oprah. Um, so, um, and it was going to be on Mother's Day, and I was going to talk about what my mother had meant to me, as well as other things. But then she sadly passed away two weeks before. Uh -huh. And so I dedicated the speech to her. And now what I'm trying to do is do many things to, in her memory. And, and for example, um, I was very fortunate in one respect. Um, my mother um, didn't really ever seek our attention, or she was not that kind of person. But I, when the Renwick Museum, uh, Renwick Gallery, which is part of the, uh, the Smithsonian, was being redone, I... I put up the money to basically help restore it. And I uh, had the biggest room there named after her. And she didn't know this. So I brought her here to the opening night. And then I walked her up Aww. the steps and she saw her name there. And she never had anything named ever. So she's very happy. What was your mom's name? Uh, Betty. Betty. And so I, I realized I'd made a mistake with my father. My father, I didn't really do anything to honor him while he was alive. And then when he passed away, I got a letter from a member of Congress saying, the Iwo Jima Memorial, my father was a U.S. Marine, Iwo Jima Memorial is decaying. Why don't you look into fixing it? So I, I did. And then I dedicated it to my father. I just oh. wish I had done it while he was alive. Yes. I, so I, I uh, tell people, 
honor your parents while they're alive because you know it's much harder to do that when they're not a- around though obviously you can but it's much better when you when you uh, can honor them when they're alive so right now i have um i think achieved something that is the hardest and most elusive thing in life which is personal happiness yes. most people who are very wealthy are i think tortured in many ways they made money but it doesn't give them as much pleasure as they thought it was going to uh, many of the happiest people i know are people who are not wealthy so wealth doesn't really equate with happiness now i'm happy because i'm giving away the money much more fulfilling and i'm involved in a lot of organizations and i i i love what i'm doing i just wish that i had more time uh in the day to get things done and, and i wish i was now um, not 68 but 58 or 48 or 38 yeah. i've said to many people i would give away every penny I have if I could be five years younger. And people say, well, are you crazy? But I say, why? Living five more years, even without money, you're going to be, you can do much more. I, I mentioned this to one of the wealthiest people in the country once. And I said, well, how much would you, if you gave away all your money um, and you could live five years longer, would you be willing to do that? And he said, well, can I negotiate for seven years or eight years or something? <laughs> but, uh, but the truth is, um, I'm, I'm a pretty happy person. I just wish that um, I had started doing many of these things younger. And I wish I had worked harder in building my company so it would be even more successful and I could give away even more money. Yeah. I think one of the things that Trisha and I share with you were, um, is that we were and are unconditionally loved by our parents. And you had that experience as well. Do you, I mean, it seems to me that a lot of your happiness is, um, stems from that. Well, there's no doubt uh, if you're the only child uh, and you go from, my parents had modest expectations. My father, I say, worked in the post office. My mother would be happy if I worked in the post office. Mm-hmm. She would. She actually wanted me to be a dentist. She <laughs> thought that was the highest calling of mankind because you get to be called a doctor. You don't have weekend hours. <laughs> and she had a lot of dental problems. She always thought that the dentists were great people. Um, but I said, look, suppose I get arthritis in my fingers. What am I going to do? So I just, I talked her out of my being a dentist. And I wanted to go into public service. And I was inspired, as I said, by President Kennedy's inaugural address to come into go into public service. And interestingly, in when I was in college, uh, and a young young boy and a young man, you did there was no idea that going into business and becoming fabulously wealthy in an early age was possible. There were no billionaires when I was growing up in the United States. If you wanted to go into business, you went to work for your family business or Procter and Gamble or IBM or something like that. And maybe in 30 years you work your way somewhat to the top. But the idea of going out and creating a private equity firm, a hedge fund, uh, um, a tech startup, that didn't exist. So I didn't aspire to be wealthy. And in fact, most people who aspire to be wealthy don't actually get to be wealthy. The people that get to be wealthy are people that had an idea. They wanted to prove that what they had was a good idea and they want to show how right it was and how wrong everybody else was in telling them it couldn't get done. So if you look at the Forbes 400 and eliminate the 10% who were there because they inherited the money, the other 90% got there because they had an idea, Bill Gates, um, Jeff Bezos, Mark Zuckerberg, and they wanted to prove the idea was good. And that's what I did with Carlisle. I didn't aspire to be particularly wealthy. I didn't think it would be that successful, but I wanted to prove that a private equity firm could be done in Washington. And I wasn't as incompetent as things as people had thought after I had gotten inflation at 19% in the Carter years and really hadn't been a great lawyer. All my clients had said, you should do something else. So I wanted to show I could do something. And I guess in the end, when I made some money and started giving away, my parents were extremely proud. Now, they were extremely proud of me early on. When you're only you're the only child, you don't have to do much to please your parents. <laughs> and I never forget the expression on my parents' face when here I am um, working in the White House as a, I'm 27 years old. I'm the deputy domestic policy advisor, president of the United States. 
And um, I'm walking out of the Oval Office and just me and the president getting on Marine One. And then my parents are standing there and they're saying, hey, my, my little boy, he's, uh, you know, he's only three years out of, out of law school and he's going to Marine One to Camp David with the president. So, you know, now your father and your brother have been president, but, you know, um, you probably you know, used to this when you were growing up that they would be president of the United States or potentially president of the United States. <laughs> right. My parents didn't even think I'd be in the White House. Right. They were happy yeah. I was, you know, had wow. a job. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Wow. You accomplished so much at such a young age. At 27, you were at the White House. We, we were also talking about failure and you kind of touched on that. How important is failure in life to you? Everybody, I, with almost no exception, who has achieved anything has failed before. So in the case of President Bush 41, mm-hmm. President Bush 41 uh, ran for the Senate twice and lost twice. Right. He ran for the presidency in 1980 and he lost, became vice president, but he lost the presidential campaign. Uh, George W. Bush ran for Congress and the first time and he lost. Right. Right. That's right. He okay. ran for Congress. He your won brother, in 1978. No, no, no. Your brother. Congress. No, no. Your brother lost. Your brother ran oh, for okay. Congress. Oh, he, he, ran, he lost against Ken Hans. Yes. That's right. He, he, he won the primary, right. but he lost the election. That's right. So uh, many people who have succeeded have lost, failed before. Take our presidents, for example. Um, in the case of uh, uh, Ronald Reagan, he ran for president before. You could say either one or two times and failed. Um, Jimmy Carter, when he ran for uh, governor the first time, he failed. Mm-hmm. Um Many of their our candidates uh, have failed in, in things. Many of the business people who have achieved things have failed at, at things before. By failure, um, you actually learn a lot. If you've never failed at something, you're not likely to be that great. You have to understand what failure is like. And I failed at many different things. So as I say, I failed at being a great lawyer. If I was a great lawyer, I would be practicing law. I wasn't great. If I was great in the public policy world, you know, they would have been asked to go back into government. Since Carter's administration is over. No president of the United States has ever said, please come in to my administration. So nobody wants me in government. So I failed in government. I failed in in um, many different things. So I, I would say failure is essential um, if you're going to actually accomplish something. And you have to learn what it's like to fail. You learn so much more by failure. I'll, without disclosing names, I'll, I'll try to disguise a point that I'm making. I have known a person who um, had incredible success in everything he or she did. And you may all have experienced this as well. Person in high school was president of the student government, goes to Harvard College, first in his class, president of student government, Rhodes Scholar, president of the Harvard Crimson, um, gets a PhD at Oxford, Yale Law School, editor-in-chief of the Yale Law, Law Journal, Supreme Court clerk. You know, you see, I've seen a couple of people with these kind of resumes. And every time you see the resume, you realize this person walks on water, you think. And so you, these people get jobs, they get promoted. But after 20 or 30 years, they've never actually accomplished anything because they never failed. And they just kind of go from one position to another position, another position. Everybody gives them these great positions because their resume, but they haven't accomplished anything. You accomplish something when you actually dig into something, you spend time at it, and you actually have failed at some parts of what you want to do. So you know you're going to have to work harder. Mm-hmm. Right. We've read about your persistence, and I guess we've experienced your persistence. <laughs> <but> you <laughs> well, persistence is uh, essential. Everybody who, who builds a company has got to be persistent. Otherwise, by definition, when you start a company, people tell you you can't do it. Almost def- almost always. How important it is, is it to find something you're passionate about? I think it's essential. If you find no entrepreneur builds a company with something that he or she doesn't really have a great passion about. 
Um, nobody's ever won a Nobel Prize saying, you know, I'm really not that interested in this area, but I'll try to do it nine to five, <laughs> five days a week. And you win a Nobel Prize. That doesn't happen. You win Nobel Prizes or you build great companies or you change the world by having a passion for something. If you don't have a passion for it, you're never going to achieve greatness because, or anything close to it because you're just not going to be committed to it. You have to put the time, the energy, the effort in, and you're not going to be able to get other people to follow you. And that's just the most important points. No one person in the world can do anything by him or herself. Mm-hmm. Einstein may be considered to be one of the smartest men who ever lived. He came up with E equals MC squared, which has revolutionized the world. But he had to convince people he was right. He did, people didn't say the second he said it, that he was right. He had to spend time convincing people. All of life is really about convincing other people to do what you want. You convince people by three ways. One, you can write very well, and maybe your writing will, will convince people. Um, you can talk very well. You can be a great speaker, Martin Luther King, John Kennedy, or you lead by example. George Washington stayed with the troops in 1777 at Valley Forge. He could have stayed at the Ritz-Carlton equivalent, but no, he stayed with the troops. So he led by example. So by persuading people something, you persuade them by what you do and they follow you. You persuade them by the way you talk or you persuade them by the way you write something and communicate. And so I think the essence of life is trying to persuade other people to do what you want. Mm -hmm. And if you're very good at it, you're passionate at it, you'll be successful. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What gets you stuck? Like you're, you become chairman of almost everything that you've been, been involved in, it sounds like. Mm-hmm. Um, but what gets you stuck? Uh, well, every day I'm, I'm trying to convince people to do what I want. And, you know, some days you convince them and some days you don't. Uh, you know, you know, in your own life, you're trying to convince your children, uh, your, 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 your business colleagues, whatever it might be. You're trying to convince them to do what you think they should do. And as you know, trying to convince your children to do what you want to do, it's a very difficult thing, right? And generally, right. the more you try to tell them to do something, they do the opposite. Right. <laughs> so convincing people to do something is is hard. And every day I'm you know, convincing people to invest with me or to do something I want to do. And, you know, sometimes I succeed, sometimes I don't. Mm-hmm. What do you worry about? What do you ruminate about? Well, there's... Do you ruminate? Or do you? Well, there, well I, <laughs> I have a lot of gray hair and that comes from worrying, I think. Um I should say I have gray hair. I'm not sure as much hair as I used to have, but I have a gray hair. So um, there are two levels of worrying. There's worrying about one's individual um, self. And there you wonder, you worry about whether you're going to um, succeed at what you're trying to do professionally and whether you're going to make a fool of yourself or just embarrass yourself or embarrass your family. So you want to succeed professionally. And uh, and secondly, personally, you want to make sure that you, let's say, your children are healthy. Now, I, mean, I think the, um, the raising children is without doubt the most complicated thing that a human can try mm-hmm. to do. Um, and raising them very well is without doubt, uh, you know, a, a feat that is very beyond many people. It's just very hard to, to raise children successfully, particularly if you come from a wealthy family. When I came from a poor family, it wasn't as hard for my parents to raise me with the right values because we didn't have too much money and so forth. My children have, have been more disadvantaged, though people will laugh at that because they raised in a, in a relatively wealthy setting. Um, so I think every parent wants to, to see the health and, and well wellness of their children. And that's um, you know not easy to do. I, so I worry about my children. I worry about whether my own professional life will be, you know, good or bad. But then I leave that aside to worry about my country. You know, mm-hmm. people tend to think of themselves as Americans in our country, and they are. 
Um, I want my country to do well. I want my country to be successful. I want it to be a place where my children can grow up, my grandchildren can grow up and, and it be in a happy environment. Um, so I am um, going to give a speech in a few days as the keynote speaker to the 25th anniversary of the Holocaust Museum. And, you know, thinking about what I'm going to say there, you know, it's, it's complicated because you're talking to people who are survivors of the Holocaust or people who have lost uh, relatives in the Holocaust. And you know, think about, will there ever be such a thing again that happens to mm-hmm. people of any background? And so I worry about where humanity is going. I worry about my country. I worry about my family. Um, those usual, usual things mm-hmm. people worry about. Mm-hmm. And of course, when you are my age, you're 68. And you're Jewish, you're always you're worried about something medically going wrong, you know, hypochondriac. <laughs> so I don't want to sound like Woody Allen, but I mean, I'm always thinking, you know, if I, I, I get a cough, I think, oh, do I have pneumonia? Um, you know, uh, I have an ingrown toenail. I wonder if my foot's going to be amputated. So I, I just never know what's going to go wrong. I'm always worried about something. <laughs> Talk to us about what it means to listen. Um, watching you on your show, you're an incredible listener. And, and when okay. we were watching a lot of them, it, it, it seemed like you were listening with more than just your ears. Well, let me explain what this is. I have a show on Bloomberg now, mm-hmm. and it's also carried on PBS. Mm-hmm. Um, I um, became the president of the Economic Club of Washington about 10 years ago. My job was to bring in speakers and let them speak and then take questions from the, the audience. I realized very quickly that most business people are very boring speakers. So... That wasn't so good. People were falling asleep when the business people were speaking. And then the questions came from the audience weren't much better. So I was reading the questions from the audience, but I was pretending I was reading. Them. I was really making them up. And people laughed at my questions. So I decided I would go to a format of just interviewing and have some humorous questions. Bloomberg saw it. They gave me a TV show. No, the, the, just from that? Well, it, it took 10 okay. years. It yeah, took, I did do it for 10 years. About, all right. So <laughs> here's what happened. When you were doing an interview somebody, um, what I try to do is to listen to what the person says. I notice that sometimes when the FBI will come by to see me on background checks with people, they have their list of 10 questions. And you can say on question number two, well, actually, this person is an axe murderer. They go to question number three. They don't actually say, well, tell me about this person being an axe murderer. <laughs> and that, that's an exaggeration to make yeah. a point. But my point is that you, you have to listen to people. Right. And so when I'm doing an interview of somebody, I have thought of the questions in advance. But if I just keep going down the questions I had in my mind and don't listen to the person, it's not a good thing. In addition, some interviewers I have seen on TV, they spend such a long, long amount of time getting the question out that there's not no time left for the person to give the answer. <laughs> so I try to lead the people to where I want them to go and let them give the answer. Mm-hmm. But in life in general, are you a good listener? Do you think? Would people describe you as a good listener? I, I, I have a habit, which people may not like, mm-hmm. of asking people a lot of questions. So I'm doing these things on TV now, mm-hmm. but actually when I'm having dinner with anybody, I'm asking questions all the time. They get tired of all the questions I'm asking. So I'm always listening to try to figure out what makes somebody tick, mm-hmm. why they do what they do, why they're interested in, in this. And then you can learn a lot more about people and you can focus on what they're most interested in. So I reasonably good listener. On the other hand, um, as my assistant keeps pointing out to me, my hearing isn't as good as it used to be. <laughs> and so when you get to be my age, you have to um, listen a lot harder because your hearing isn't what it is. Now, I've supported a um, the hearing center at Johns Hopkins. I've helped create a hearing center at Johns Hopkins on the hope that they can create better <laughs> hearing for people like me. It turns out that each person is born with more or less 20,000 what they call hair cells in your ear, in right. each ear. 
these hair cells degenerate over a period of life. <laughs> and they don't come back, right? They, they do not. <laughs> However, birds regenerate their hair, their, their, their hair cells in their ears. So we're trying to figure out what we can do that are going to be like birds and get our hair cells regenerated. And I keep telling the people at Hopkins, do this before my hearing goes away completely. <laughs> That's good. That's, that's really amazing. Good. <laughs> well, we have a couple questions that we ask everybody that's on our podcast. We call them our rapid fire questions. Mm-hmm. So um, we're going to ask you. Okay. So what book should everyone read? Well, if you say just one book. Well, we just want to know one book. If there but is if you have one book, more than one. Uh, well, okay. I, I read a book by... Uh, Doro Bush on her father. Oh, did you like that? that? It was a great book. Thank you. Very good book. I mean, a love of her father. father. My president. Right. I mean, that was a great book. I would recommend that book. That's a very good book. Thank you. Thank you. I think any book about George Herbert Walker Bush is an incredible book. There's a great biography about him out now uh, by um, John Meacham. Mm -hmm. I think it's a very good book. I've interviewed him about that Mm -hmm. and I'll do it again uh, at the Library of Congress shortly. Oh, good. Um, I, um, you know, I, I, I love reading and I try to read. I know this sounds uh, hard to believe, but I try to read two books a week. Mm-hmm. And I. What, what kind? I'm well, I am. I don't read novels. I'm sorry. I Maybe I should, but I, I read. <laughs> if I saw over here, where, oh no, in your office, Sandra Brown. I read biographies. <laughs> I read um, business books, books on philanthropy, big books on politics. These are books I can distill pretty quickly. And the reason I can read this many books is I have a lot of programs where I'm interviewing authors. So I started a program to interview authors of American history books in front of only members of Congress. It's going on for about mm-hmm. five years now. So the greatest authors in American history, Doris Kearns, Goodwin, or David McCullough, I interview them. And I have to read the books. Right. Then I also am the chair of the, uh, the Madison Council of the Library of Congress, and I have to interview authors there. I'm the principal underwriter for the National Book Festival, and so I interview authors there. Um, and like last year, I interviewed four authors, uh, J.D. Vance, uh, David McCullough, oh. and um, uh, Condi Rice were the three of the best known ones that I interviewed mm-hmm. uh, last year. And I always, because I'm reading books that I have to interview the authors of, I read a lot of books, but I love reading. I regard it as an important part of our life. And I've gotten more interested in this because of the Barbara Bush Literacy Foundation, yes. Family Literacy Foundation, which you've got me involved with mm-hmm. at times. Um, I now underwrite the Library of Congress's um, Literacy Awards, and I'm very involved in in that. And I'd like to remind people that 14% of adults in our country are functionally, functionally illiterate, mm-hmm. and that um, 85% of juvenile delinquents are functionally illiterate, two-thirds of prisoners in our prison system are functionally illiterate, and that there's another problem called illiteracy, which means you don't read even though you can. And 30% of people who graduate from college in our country never read another book in their life. 30% never read another book in their life. So I try to tell people, read all the time. And reading books is more important than reading magazine articles or newspapers or tweets. Mm-hmm. Because a book requires you to have sustained thinking for quite a while. It requires you to really concentrate the brain. And books are what really, I think, makes the human um, experience so much different than than the experience of other uh creatures on the face of the earth, the mm-hmm. things that people have written down and you can learn. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I think reading is essential, but if you had to read one book, probably the one book that is the most essential book of all would of course be the Bible mm-hmm. because it distills so much of human nature in it, so much of a history. And if that was the only one book you would take anywhere with you, I suspect that would be the book. What quote brings you strength and peace? I like the quote um, that I think is the, 
the most quoted line in the English language, but I think it carries a great deal of meaning. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they're endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. What Thomas Jefferson did with that quote was he really set the stage unintentionally for what America is all about, that all men, now really all people, are created equal. Now, we obviously haven't achieved that goal, but it's a goal to which we aspire. And it, he set forth what life is all about, which is life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Happiness being, again, the most elusive thing, but that's what life is about. You presumably want to achieve happiness without hurting other people. And so I think that is probably the quote that I enjoy the most. I, the other one that I often like to talk about uh, with people is uh, John Kennedy's quote uh, from his inaugural address, uh, ask not what your country can do for you but what you can do for your country. And you think about it, while it was very artfully written that way, that's what you know. we should all want Americans mm -hmm. to think about, what mm -hmm. they can actually do to make the country a better place. Mm -hmm. You are such an example of that. What would you say to your 30-year-old self since you're 68? Right. <laughs> I would say, um, don't waste time doing things you're, you're probably not going to be that interested in. But I would say, uh, try to begin a life of giving back to the country, philanthropy, uh, wise or other kinds of ways uh, as you're younger. I started doing this more when I was in my 50s, not when I was in my 30s. And I would say probably if I could do my live my life over again, I would say um, probably um, stay healthier, uh, exercise more, eat better. Well, that's um, good. <laughs> and, um, and focus on wellness so I could live to be 100. I think it was Warren Buffett who said, and somebody asked him, what did he want in his tombstone? He said, I want it to be said, here lies the, the oldest living man who ever lived. Oh, yeah. <laughs> What's your favorite meal, dare I ask? Well, I, would, <laughs> I, I, I can tell you, but nobody will like the answer to it, um, probably. I, I have gone to many elaborate restaurants over the years, and I've mm -hmm. beaten at some of the restaurants that are the fanciest in the world, where the bills now come to staggering amounts of money. And actually, I, I prefer Chinese takeout <laughs> over anything. So if I could have Chinese takeout... Um, that's probably my favorite. Second favorite is any room service meal. <laughs> Sitting room service by myself, quietly in front of a television, watching what's going on without having to make conversation with anybody and just having the food that I ordered. And, and, and just, you know, for some reason, food service, I mean, room, room service, service tastes better. I don't know if you ever, you ever noticed this. They taste so much, so much better. And then they push the tray in, you push the tray out. It's easy. You know, to clean up, it's just wonderful. Okay. Well, I don't know what, if this last question will even be a good question, but if you could sit next to anyone at dinner tonight, or let me rephrase it. If you had to sit next to someone at dinner tonight, who would that be? George Herbert Walker Bush. Oh. I think George Herbert Walker Bush, I've said this many times, was not the um, nicest person who was ever present. He was the nicest person I've ever met. Um, he's just a gracious person, uh, kind. So I wouldn't put in the category of the, the, the nicest president I've ever met. I would just say the nicest person I've ever met. And just um, I've spent many years uh, working with him on various projects and just gracious, charming, um, you know, intelligent, you know, terrific person. So uh, he would be one and I would say he'd be terrific. I, another person I would say would be the Pope. I think that the mm. current Pope is an interesting person in many ways. I don't really know him. So I think that would be good. Um, and um, You're only allowed to sit with one. A one. Oh, one. Okay. All right. So I'll, I'll take those two. Sorry. That's okay. 
Well, thank you so much, yes. David, for being thank on our you. podcast. And I, I noticed you drank quite yes, a bit of your green drink. I I, it's great. I, I, you know, I'm assuming it's going to make me live a couple years longer. I think so. Thank you for joining us on Health Gig. We loved having you with us. We hope you'll tune in again next week. In the meantime, be sure to like and subscribe to this podcast and follow us on healthgigpod.com. I'm Trisha. And I'm Doro. Be well.